if you're going to go and do something, make sure it's what you like because it will require a lot of work and there's no point wasting your time and wasting your life spending hours and hours and hours and hours and hours trying to get good at something that's not really something you're passionate about. Hey everyone, my name is Jack Kavna and you are very welcome to the Only Human Podcast. I am absolutely delighted to welcome Pat Diverly to the podcast today. Pat got his grounding in business in the areas of fitness and personal training. Having built his community off the back of the sentiments of belief and belonging, something which so many of us need. In his mid-twenties, he transitioned to the area of mindset, personal development coaching and public speaking and has now got sell-out events all over the country. The reason Pat resonates so much with people is that he is real, he is authentic and he's incredibly humble. He tells stories that everybody can relate to and I've no doubt that many of you will take really valuable insights from today's conversation. Enjoy. Pat Divley, you are very welcome to the Only Human podcast. How are you? I'm very good. I'm glad we get to do this because we're a while talking about it, but uh, just trying to coordinate two busy men's schedules. Uh, we got there in the end. So thank you for having me. No, I'm delighted. I suppose we've known each other for a couple of years, um, maybe slightly distantly in some ways. It's funny, the first time I got introduced to you or that you came to my attention was maybe um, 2014, I would say. So I was just after going back to college and maybe I was a year back to college after having uh, my spinal injury and I had thrown myself into the world of personal development, uh, psychology, because I needed all of those tool sets for myself to piece back together uh, what was at that time like a very fragmented life. And my friend James is from Galway. And he said, uh, you know, Jack, you talk about a lot of the same things that this lad, Pat, talks about. Um, I think you'd really like him. And so he sent me a link to your profile. And the first post that I saw was a list of all the things that you were going to achieve in the next year. And I think you wanted to buy two houses. You had a figure of like money that you wanted to achieve. You had all the countries that you wanted to travel to. And there was like just this massive list. And I thought on one side, I was like massive respect for putting that out there. And I really started to pay attention. But what has been remarkable to watch is just how that mindset, which brought you a lot of success in many ways, has evolved so dramatically and how your definition of success has probably evolved so dramatically over the years. So mm. when you hear that, how does that, how does that sit? Yeah, I mean, I, I look back and I was daft back a couple of years ago. I was really, I was coming from a, a place of insecurity and, and um, scarcity in that you know I had failed with a, a business I had uh, I had moved back in with my parents when I was 24 and 
I felt a sense of shame. I, I felt a sense of uh, unworthiness. I felt all these horrible emotions and feelings about myself. And so when I started achieving a little bit of success, that became, I suppose, addictive and validating and all this kind of stuff. And it was just more and more and more and more and more. And um, I was going at such a pace, I, I didn't have any time or space to kind of consciously think about what I wanted. So I always assumed the answer was more. And um, I always had a story of I'll be happy when. So despite, you know, being able to buy a house and, and do these things that I'd always wanted to do, um, I didn't allow myself to enjoy those moments and I would just kind of skip on to the next thing. So, yeah, when I think back to that kind of thing, I'm like, wow, you know, um, I'm glad I, I shifted perspective. You know, there was a couple of things that just made me kind of take stock and learn to enjoy the journey a bit more as cliche as that sounds, but put some different practices into place, probably 2016, I would say, in or around that time. Uh, funnily, it was around the time I did the Late Late Show, which to me I thought was going to be the, the answer to all my problems and was going to be like the highlight of my career. Around that time, I sort of said, geez, I've ticked a lot of boxes here and I'm still not content day to day. Um, I'm successful on paper, but I don't feel successful internally. And uh, I definitely made some changes, I, I would say, the last three, four years. And I feel a lot more centered and a lot more... Uh, I feel a lot more successful, I suppose. And maybe it doesn't look that way from the outside, but that's definitely how I feel. Yeah, and just from from what I know of you and from our interactions, and and you speak very openly and candidly about it, I I think that is very authentic, you know? that sense of centeredness that you're experiencing now is, is real, you know? Um, in many ways, I, I think our stories mirror each other. And one of the things that I will say when I'm speaking is that my story is just your story written in different words. And the reason for that is because we all share this common thread of ups and downs. And in your early 20s, you had basically the dark night of the soul where, as you mentioned, you had gone up to Dublin from Galway after graduating from a master's and you wanted to make a go of it with, uh, and to be seen to be making it um, in personal training field. And you found yourself working with a, a lot of celebrities. and maybe that path didn't didn't work out quite the way you, you thought and socially it looked like success but um the reality was very different and you found yourself coming up to christmas that year wandering wandering around aimlessly around the city wondering what is happening with my life and just completely disillusioned can you speak to that a little bit yeah um you know, again, you know what it's like when you start doing the work on yourself in terms of looking over your past and looking at the patterns and the stories you have. And, you know, when I look back, going way back, I suppose, I was bullied a little bit as a kid and that gave me some uh, beliefs about myself that I was an outcast or I didn't fit in. And that drove a lot of my behaviors to want to be popular or want to be known or want to be successful, all these different things. So, you know, I think if you don't believe that you are enough as you are, um, you'll chase it externally. You'll look for things outside of yourself and you can achieve a lot of those things. So me in my early 20s, I moved from Galway to Dublin. Um, I had this picture of going from the small town to the big town and doing well. And I felt like if enough people come to know my name and know that I'm successful, then eventually I'll believe it myself. 
Now, in subsequent years, I came to learn that it almost magnifies your insecurities when you don't make peace with yourself and other people think you've made it. But anyway, yeah, I, I was in Dublin. I, I was working in clothes shops and doing different jobs, but I sort of painted this picture on social media of success. Um, I was training a few of the models up there. I would train them for free in the hope that I'd get some newspaper coverage. Um, so my friends back home were seeing me train model, training models and never coming home. They thought I'd made it. And um, I think I was just so, so out of integrity and so out of alignment in terms of, you know, the life I was living was different to what I was portraying. Um, I had lost myself completely. I didn't know who I was anymore. I was struggling with the thought of uh, judgment with coming home, having failed, because everyone had told me there's no industry for fitness. And I had been proved wrong and they'd been proved right. So there was a lot going on. I was struggling with my mental health. I was, you know, like you say, walking around the city for hours some nights um, with this energy running through my body, not knowing where to go or what to do. And I was completely lost. And, and, um, I look back now with compassion for myself because I was a young guy. And, and I mean, any time in your life, you'd feel compassion for someone else. But when it's yourself in the situation, oftentimes you just get really down on yourself and, and you get attached to it. Um, you know, but luckily I came home. I had support from my family. Um, I spent a couple of months, as you say, dark night of the soul, trying to figure out where I was going and what I was doing. And then I started my classes in Galway out on the beach. And that kind of gave me a sense of purpose for the first time in a long time. And I recognized the importance of human connection. I recognized all these things that had always been there, but my sort of obsession with success or whatever that meant um, had kind of blinded me from a lot of stuff that was already in front of me. Yeah, and I think it's true for so many of us, uh, and particularly with the dawn of like the social age and um, social media age, even uh, it's taken us away from so much of reality because it's so easy to paint the picture that you want others to believe online, and the further that image of ourselves online is separated from the reality, just the the more we eat ourselves up on inside you know and it seems that your definition of success has dramatically changed so over the years you've you've moved away from the fitness industry after being wonderfully successful and building all of that was centered around building belief and belonging within people which I think the success of that alone shows how much that was required and there was an appetite for that um, which is still true, I think. But you moved much more into the area of of mindset and personal development. I'd love for you to share a little bit about what that transition looked like and what was happening for you when you made that move. Sure. Um, I found fitness when I was 12 or 13. So it was kind of, again, bullied a bit as a kid and fitness was something that gave me confidence early on. So I think the process of doing something where you see direct results of what you're doing gives confidence. Like that's where self-esteem comes from. It's, it's an internal uh, reward for your efforts. And uh, at the same time as discovering fitness, I also discovered the self-help books of so the Tony Robbins, the Zig Ziglar's, the Brian Tracy's, all these guys, again, back when I was 12 or 13. So that's 20 years ago now. And um, I read a lot of these books, but I never really applied the stuff. I, I applied the bits that suited me, but not the rest. And then when I had my, my failure with uh, coming home, being completely lost and starting again, my mentality at that point was my way doesn't work. Let's try someone else's way. And I started reading the books again and really applying 
and I suppose what I what I applied proved beneficial. Um, started growing the business as I started making some money. I was able to go and meet the people that had written the books and learn directly from them, and it just added so much to my life. And every time I would learn something, I would pass it on to my clients in the gym. And the gym went from being about weight loss to suddenly people were leaving abusive relationships or starting businesses and the principles that were in fitness were carrying across to the mind. And I had just lost the passion and the love for fitness. Um, I had gone from teaching a lot of classes every week and being immersed in fitness to not wanting to be in the gym anymore. And I came to a point where I said, I'll go once a week, I'll do one day a week in the gym and I'll have other trainers on the other days, but at least all my clients get to see me once. And when it got to the point that I wasn't enjoying that one day a week and I couldn't muster the energy for that, I knew it was time to change. So the the struggle and the challenge with that was the stories uh, that I had in my head. One of my stories was people will think I'm getting big for my boots here because I'm walking away from, you know, the people that had helped me build this gym. Um, I had all these stories, but I knew I wasn't enjoying it anymore. And so... Yeah, I suppose looking back, it probably looks like a smooth transition of going from fitness to doing the speaking thing. But the reality was probably, I'd say at least three, if not four years of kind of, um, I'm losing track of time as the time seems to come by so fast. Probably three years of uncertainty in terms of should I have kept the gym? There was a steady income there. There was a physical premises. And now I'm just kind of, you know, I, I'm trying to do something that isn't done a huge amount in Ireland and the personal development hasn't really kicked off and you don't get the big, big fees that you might get in the States. And so, you know, there's been challenges that have come with it, but it's definitely more fulfilling. And I think over the couple of years, I've started to slowly plant the seeds and water the water the seeds in terms of what I'm trying to do. Um, and it's starting to pay off, but it's a, it's a slow burn, but I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that uh, that uncertainty is something that I felt massively over the years as well. Um, I think when you realize maybe the path that you were on isn't serving you anymore. And uh, I very much had this quiet voice in the back of my head that was there for quite a while and I could drown it out by just one more achievement or by buying into public uh, gratification and and all of those kind of things and eventually the voice just gets louder and louder and that sense of quiet discontent or disease like if you don't pay attention to that it just turns to d- disease whether that's in the body or the mind and like the uncertainty that comes with making that shift is is not to be underestimated but like when you come out the other end of it you're you really grow and evolve as a person I think because you're honoring yourself yeah exactly I mean every time you say yes to something you don't want to do you're saying no to yourself and that gradually kind of bites into your self-esteem um, I'm doing a lot of study around boundaries at the moment and you know boundaries is basically this idea that we all have a need for self-expression and for like living our truth whatever that is for each of us and then on the polar opposite we have a need to fit in and to be belonging you know belong to the group and sometimes those two things don't go together because if I try to express who I am, it's challenging through a group and I'm not accepted. So for most of us, the group mentality wins and we kind of um, sacrifice who we are, um, at least to some degree. And we all do it to different degrees, you know, wearing masks and, and um, feeding into whatever is the normal thing to do according to your society, your religion, your culture, your family, whatever it might be. 
And so it does take bravery and it takes, um, yeah, you know, look, all the money in the world won't make you happy if you're not happy doing what you're doing. So I think you have to listen to that voice and, and be brave. And, you know, I, I could, I could, get my biggest speaking gig ever. And if the next day I decide I don't like doing this anymore, I'll just move on to something else. So I think you can't be attached to your identity. That's when you're, that's when you're not really living anymore. You have to be always challenging yourself and questioning yourself and be willing to be wrong and be willing to start again. I think those are important traits for us all. Yeah. I I know two things that, that you talk about and that I really subscribe to is the the idea of living in the stretch zone the the work that's done around flow and living in the stretch zone gets us closer there and the second piece is around uh, adopting a beginner's mindset all the time um, yes what are your thoughts on that yeah so flow um this is something i've tried to live for a couple of years and it was only when i saw the research and the kind of analogies around flow that it really clicked for me but um, my, the way I explain flow is to say that um, we all have moments in life where time and space almost disappear and the, the, the voice in our head that, that criticizes us disappears as well because we're just in whatever we're doing. So it could be uh, when you're painting, if you're a painter, you just lose yourself or listening to your f- favorite music or even just being out for lunch with a friend where you're just so connected to being present, I suppose. And um, the state of flow in terms of personal growth is about a lot of us live in a comfort zone where we do the same thing today as we did yesterday. And so we get similar results. And um, they say we have uh, 60,000 thoughts a day and they say 98% of those thoughts are the same on a daily basis. Um, so our comfort zone is where we do the same things, get the same results. The flip side of that is a panic zone. And that's when we decide we want to shake things up and make some drastic change. But for a lot of us, we panic because it's so different and we step back to comfort. So most of us go between comfort and panic and comfort and panic. And it's very black and white and lacks consistency. Whereas stretch zone is a little bit in between where I'm honest with myself about what my edge is, so to speak. So, so to speak. Like what is the edge for me, not for anyone else? Like there's certain things with public speaking now I can do in my sleep. And someone else might say, oh, you're, you're getting good at the public speaking, but I know in myself if I'm actually stretching myself or if I'm not. And ultimately, you have to be in that stretch zone all the time to feel fulfillment, to feel growth, to feel purpose. Um, and then the second thing is the beginner's mindset. And that's just the willingness to look silly and to fail and to be uncertain and to, to, to not need to know what's going to happen. Um, the interesting thing with the coronavirus at the moment is we're all having to learn how to trust a bit more because you start to recognize that we're not in as much control as we think we are. And particularly those of us that really value certainty and like to know what's coming next and like to have our routines, it's definitely a big challenge to recognize that there's something else out there that's calling the shots. And so, you know, as the work that we do is all about, I can't change my circumstances, but I can change my perspective. And so, we're all getting that chance right now. And in the coming months, we're going to get that chance going forward. Um, and that's the beginner's mindset is, is recognize I don't have all the answers I'm not supposed to. Um, but to make the most of life, I should just lean into new things and be willing to learn on the go. Yeah. And then with that comes imperfect action. And if I've observed anything from from just watching from afar over the last couple of years. And probably the thing that I would admire most about you, Pat, is that you're, you're just 
you're very much you live that beginner's mindset and you're willing to take imperfect action and not to have it all figured out and to learn as you go and so many people get stopped in their tracks before they ever take the first step because that fear comes up inside them and and most of that comes back to the fear of judgment um if somebody's experiencing and judgment of themselves or from others if somebody is experiencing that and there's something they want to pursue but that fear is coming up for them what do you say to someone in that kind of situation i mean there's different analogies that get used in the personal development space there's the the analogy of when a toddler is learning how to walk they don't give it a go two or three times and and you know fall over and you as a parent decide well they're not very good at that let's get them to do something else you recognize that you don't just learn to walk straight away you you, you fail and you fall you do it a hundred thousand times before you actually get to grips with it and i think remembering that kind of thing you know anything we have them uh in a straight line didn't come with perfection was messy at the start and whether it was a new job that you started and you didn't know what you were doing and it took weeks to get used to the, the system and now you do it in your sleep or anything else, your first time going to the gym, you're sore for a week afterwards. There's, there's all these examples if you kind of reflect upon your life. And so one thing I encourage people to do is just set a target in terms of how many hours you want to commit to whatever you're doing that's new. So, you know, if I want to do a podcast and I'm holding myself back because of the fear of, you know, again, judgment or not getting it right, whatever that means, um, I might set the goal of over the next two months, I'm going to record two podcasts a week. And that's my goal. The goal is not for them to be perfect. I have no expectation of myself other than to show up. And it's through showing up that we improve. But again, the voice in our head that wants to be right doesn't want to show up because he could be wrong. Um, I use an example of Jerry, uh, what's his name? Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld? Was it yep. Jerry Seinfeld? And um, you know, he had this thing where he would write one joke every day. And he had a big wall chart. And when he wrote his joke, he put a red X on the wall chart and he never wanted to break the streak. And the thinking was most of those jokes are not going to be much good. But every now and then, if I stay consistent, there'll be a few golden nuggets in there. And in the same way, you know, when you start something new, if you make a commitment to doing some sort of practice on it every day, no, every day is not going to be great. Most of the days probably won't be great. But every now and then you'll have some magic. Um, so I think those couple of things can be useful. Another thing to consider is is get yourself a coach or a mentor of some kind. Like I started surfing last year um, and I've been, out, I've been out loads on my own and, and not gotten very far. And then I've done a two-hour lesson with someone who's doing it for 10 years, 20 years, and you learn so much more. Like you just fast-track the learning curve. And what I've learned recently with coaches is more than them telling you what to do or having the answers or anything like that, I think the faith that they give you when you're doubting yourself is probably the most powerful thing about a coach. Um, mm. like I'll, I'll turn to them and I'll say, do you think I'm too old starting this, like to realistically get, get to a certain level? And they're like, no, you're fine. I've seen loads of people that are twice your age that have started. And you're like, okay, it could be that little bit of relief. Um, so yeah, I think get a coach or a mentor or someone a couple of steps ahead of you and use them as your gauge of your progress rather than, like most of us, when we try something new, who do we go and tell only our friends and our family who don't know anything about this new thing? Like there's no point me telling my friends and family, Oh, I'm going to surf. And they could all tell me you're too old. You're, you know, you're not going to be able to do it. You're not a good swimmer, but they don't have any context because they're not surfers. So I'm better off going to a surfer. Um, if that makes sense, go to the person who's doing the thing you want to do and 
ask them and learn from them and get coached by them rather than your average shows and Janes might not have as much context. Yeah. And I think there's, there's a big thing as well around, we see so much online, the finished, what we perceive to be the finished product. So someone looks on and sees you on stage and they say, God, Pat looks so comfortable up there. And they don't realize the hours and hours and hours of work that have gone in, the number of times you've stumbled, the number of times that things haven't worked out. And it's the fact that before you finish a marathon, you have to do the first step, you know, and um, you use the analogy of people want a hundred clients before they have one and all these kind of things. And they're the same way of saying, of saying, uh, there are different ways of saying the same thing. And a lot of that comes down to the expectations we put on ourselves, which are completely tied into the stories we tell ourselves. And that's something that you speak an awful lot about because the stories that we say to ourselves, they really run our lives. They're everything. Um, again, back to the fitness days, I think, think the thing that I started noticing in working with hundreds of clients was thousands of clients, even between online clients and clients in Galway, you give a thousand clients the same meal plan or a similar meal plan. You give them the same support. You give them the same amount of training sessions and a certain percentage seem to thrive and others don't. And you start to question it. And part of it is the, the internal dialogue. So to make it really simple, the way I sort of explain it is something happens. There's a situation that happens or there's lots of situations that happen to us in life small things, big things, you know, every type of situation. And when something happens, we attach a meaning to it. And when we attach a meaning to it, that becomes our new kind of world view. So as an example, um, if I am a young guy and I ask a girl out and she says no and laughs at me, the situation has been, I've been rejected, or at least that's what seems to have happened. The meaning I attach to it is I should never ask a girl out again because this is painful. And then my worldview becomes like my new rule for life effectively is don't go and ask a girl out because I've seen how that goes. And so from the outside looking in, you can look at that situation and be like, well, I don't know that he got rejected. Maybe she's seeing someone. Maybe she is nervous and shy herself. There could be a million different, you know, meanings as to what actually happens. But when it's ourselves, we've got a negativity bias where we tend to think the worst a lot of the time. And then we've got a confirmation bias. So those two biases, the negativity biases, we always look for the worst. We always see what's not working. We always see where we're falling short. The confirmation bias is when I have a belief about the world, I look for evidence that backs up my belief. Uh, in other words, if you're a Donald Trump fan, you will look for evidence of all the great things Donald Trump's done. If you are an Obama fan, you'll look for all the stuff Obama's done. Uh, if you think people are good, you'll find the good people in the world. If you think people are bad, and where this starts to matter is we've all got underlying stories. Carl Jung said, when we make, or until we make the unconscious conscious, it will run our lives and we'll call it fate. In other words, until I become aware of my stories that are running in the background, those stories will lead to how I show up in the world. And I'll think the world is just happening to me as opposed to for me. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, I recently studied uh, NLP, did a a week-long practic practitioner course. And I know it's something you've done in the past. And for anybody that's not familiar with NLP, it's 
neuro-linguistic programming. So it looks at the mind and how we perceive and interpret uh, information. It looks at the language we use and how that's formed both in the brain and how we speak and how others speak and communicate. And lastly, it looks at the behavior and this whole idea, uh, the behaviors that are resulting from that. And uh, all of what you've just said is is very much founded in in that philosophy um, and and it's it's a really strong way of of thinking about it i I might shift gear a little bit um with you and ask you about some of the areas that you're really passionate about at the moment. I know that um, speaking and podcasting are big on your agenda, but so is Brazilian jiu-jitsu and meditation and breath work and climbing uh, outrageously big mountains. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know what? Like I say, I, I, moved, I moved home when I was 24. So that was when I failed with that first business. And I got the head down and started my small business in Galway. And 24 to 27 was just a whirlwind in terms of starting with five clients and then going on to open a gym and bring out three books. And there was a lot that happened. And again, on paper, really successful. And I just woke up at 27 and I was just a little bit lost. Um, I was confused as to why I had achieved all my goals, but I still didn't feel great. And I suppose, again, it was kind of back to the drawing board. My way is not working. What changes can I make? And meditation was something I'd heard about for years. And so I wanted to try that, but I felt my mind was too busy at the time. Um, then I found Wim Hof, the, the, the breath work with Wim Hof. And I went out and spent a week with Wim in Poland and learned the breath work from him. And that was something I started integrating. So, you know, our breath always tells us a lot about what's going on in the, in the body. If we're anxious, we breathe one way. If we're relaxed, we breathe another. And it's almost like a trigger or a switch that we can flick um, to make us feel better. So I started doing the Wim Hof every day. Um, I went back to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and that was from recognizing that the last time I was happy doing something that wasn't attached to money or success was when I trained martial arts as a teenager. And then I started climbing mountains because that taught me that you could be 21 days on a mountain and you spend 15 minutes on the top. You kind of learn pretty quickly to enjoy the journey and not make it about getting to the top as quick as possible. Um, yeah, I took up these these couple of things and then got into yoga and surfing more recently. And it's just more the, the recognition that, you know, I don't want to spend my life saying I'll be happy when anymore. I want to have targets and goals in the future. But more than that, I want to have daily the daily goal of being happy. Uh, and, you know, one of the simple tools I'll use is to start the day by asking today I'm excited for and just filling in, filling in the blank. And um that's a way of, of ensuring that every day you put something in your life that you can be happy about. And it doesn't mean, you know, sometimes people that are dismissive of personal development or positive thinking think, well, not everything's positive. And I would agree. And it's not about thinking everything is positive, but it's about having little tools that can help you. And so sometimes people come to me and they say, I hate my work. Should I quit my job? And I'm like, well, one, I'm not going to tell you what you should do because only you know that. But oftentimes the solution is not to leave your job. Maybe the job is not the problem. Maybe the problem is you don't have something outside of the job that you can be excited for. And so sometimes people take up a hobby and they start making that a priority and work improves and family improves and stuff like that. So yeah, I have lots of passions, lots of interests. I, I like being a beginner. I like seeing how different people teach different things. And 
Um, you know, uh, my biggest passion is still the personal development and, and psychology and all that kind of stuff. So my biggest hobby is, is studying. And my mom is laughing now because when she used to bring me out to my college exams, I'd have other people's notes and, and I, I would have not been to any lectures and I'd be scraping by. And now I spend six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 hours a day studying. So it's, it's been a, I think when you find what you like, it's easier to do it. So as you said earlier, people don't see the work that goes on behind the scenes. And so that what makes that significant is if, you, if you're going to go and do something, make sure it's what you like because it will require a lot of work. And there's no point wasting your time and wasting your life spending hours and hours and hours and hours and hours trying to get good at something that's not really something you're passionate about. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Like people talk about go find your passion and they might not realize that the root of the word passion means to suffer. I think, like you said, it's it's really a case of you put the hours in and the work has to be done. And both of us, before we hit record, were sort of showing each other what we're, what we're reading and studying at the moment. Uh, both of us are really interested in in personal development work and, and psychology. And I think it's a never-ending uh, toolbox that you're expanding when you start exploring these areas. Earlier on, we we alluded to success a number of times, and I've heard you speak a number of times over the last couple of years that really you your value or your definition of success now has become about simplicity more than ever. Mm-hmm. And it's those simple practices that you can do every day because the days of your life make up your life. What what are your thoughts on that whole idea of simplicity now? Yeah, um, I spoke to someone this morning and I was saying that um, my my experience has been that when I enjoy my day-to-day life, I don't need to spend money on stuff outside of myself. Um, if I get to study and, and present and teach and podcast and do a bit of jiu-jitsu and meditate a little bit and spend some time with good people, that's my life pretty much full. Like that's a simple life, but it doesn't require me going out buying things and spending money on extravagance and all that. And that's, everyone's different. Like that's my value system. But simplicity to me is, is recognizing that there's kind of an analogy with mastery of, of if I'm out in the desert and I'm starving um, for water and I start digging a hole in the desert to try to get to water. And after a couple of minutes, I give up. And then I walk a couple of meters down the road and I, I start going again and I keep repeating that cycle. I'm just getting two or three foot deep. Um, and really, if I stuck with the one thing and I stuck with the basics and I really went deep on them and really gave them a go and stayed consistent, I think I, I can achieve a lot of things in my life. So I sort of outlined I can't be good at everything, um, but I can pick a few things that really matter to me that that bring a lot to my life. And 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 that's that's me. I mean... Life is simple when you break it down. You do things you enjoy. You spend time with people that you care about. You push yourself a little bit outside your comfort zone. You give back in some way and you take care of your mind and don't let it build horror stories in your head. Um, I think if you do those things, um, that can simplify life. And so that's kind of what I try and stick with. Pick a couple of goals every few months to work toward. Embrace the journey. Track my progress. Count my mini wins. Look out for people around me and that's that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, I, I'm in a similar boat. I, I made a big shift um, at the end of last year and really it was, I just got very clear about what, what was important to me. And, and when you do that, things really do become a lot more straightforward. And 
you want for so much less, which is which is a great way to be. Uh, but it takes time to to get that clarity, and it always requires checking in with yourself. And I do that with journaling, and I know that's something that's stood to you incredibly well as well. Journaling is um, journaling is the number one tool for me. Um, across the board it's it's been transformative um it's something i've always done on some level but it used to be just writing down goals and then it became about writing about my past just to kind of get to know my own story as to where i came from and where my beliefs came from then it became about you know just exploring different topics and the way i frame it is that when i when i write with pen and paper i'm having a conversation with myself um so pat is getting to know pat as opposed to always looking outside and I can learn a lot from books and mentors and coaches and podcasts, but I can never learn as much as I do with pen and paper. And it's the same for everyone. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a daily practice. It allows me to get some of the madness in my mind onto paper and kind of lessen the load. Um, at the moment, I'm just doing three pages a day. I just kind of write whatever's on my mind and don't filter it. Don't read it over. Don't grammar check. Um, and that's been really interesting, the stuff that comes up. So there's an idea with the journaling as well about kind of um, a lot of us live in our heads. And so we're disconnected from our hearts or our soul or our intuition, whatever you want to call it. Like that voice that you talked about that we all have. A lot of us have silenced that voice for a long time. And so with pen and paper, you can allow yourself to start being brave and just putting down whatever comes up and, and not feel the need to get it right as our heads always do. Um, so like I say, I'm, inter- I'm learning a lot of interesting stuff about myself during this isolation and um, when you understand yourself, you can make better decisions and, you know, things like self-sabotage that people talk about and lack of consistency, that's all just living on autopilot and being reactive. And when you journal, I think you start to see where those patterns come from and maybe find more empowering ways of being. Yeah. You become more responsive rather than reactive and you start to understand your own patterns a little bit more. We, we are living in unprecedented times in our living memory with COVID-19 and the more time passes the more we're seeing different parts of the world uh, imposing quarantines and stricter measures and life has adjusted in a dramatic way very quickly for a lot of people and there is a lot of that uncertainty we have mentioned uh, it in our own lives but it's kind of on a societal level if you had any advice for people during this time or suggestions what would you what would you point to as as good tools to uh, manage this uncertainty i would say meditate and journal um meditate and journal so I've been giving people some ideas and stuff that on, on, on the most simple level, and I'll explain why those two tools, but, but on the most simple level, I would say your box breath, so four-second inhale through your nose, hold your breath for four seconds, exhale for four seconds, and then hold for four seconds. That's a box breath. I'm encouraging people to do that five to ten minutes a day, so that's the first recommendation. And the second is journaling. So, again, there's a lot of different ways of doing it, but... Just give yourself a chance for 10 minutes every day to write down whatever's on your mind and just get it onto paper. So the reason I would suggest those two is that there's two wars that are going on in the coming months. One is the external like reality, like there's reality out there. The economy is going to look a certain way. 
business, small businesses are going to struggle or close. Big businesses struggle or close. A lot of people out of work. There's a lot of external reality that's going to be difficult and make life different. Um, but then there's also the internal battle. And the internal battle is one that we've got a little bit of control over. And by building the practice of meditation and journaling every day, you're making peace to some degree with your mind. And so what you're doing is, you know, we talk about Pavlov's dogs, right? Where there was the uh, stimulus and response. I'm sure people listening will be familiar. And they, they would feed these dogs. Sorry, they'd ring a bell and then they'd feed these dogs and the dogs would salivate and then they'd eat the food. And then they stopped giving the food. They would just ring the bell. And the dog's natural response on autopilot was they would start salivating, assuming there was food coming. So in the same way, there's things that happen to us in life. And unless we have practices like meditation or journaling or just a hobby even, um, we tend to be very reactive. And so when you start to journal and meditate for the next three, four or five months, if bad news comes three, four or five months from now, you'll find yourself a little bit, le bit, le little bit less reactive. And as you say, you'll be able to take a breath and be responsive and think, right, what can I do? Rather than I'm a victim of my situation, like what can I do? So that's probably the idea. Control the controllables, let go of the rest. One thing that's within our control is creating a bit of space for ourselves with pen and paper and, and the breath. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I know that there's a lot of statements coming in from the out, outside world and we're being told an awful lot of things and there's a lot of questions in the outside world unanswered, but if we if we take that bit of time out to first of all connect and use the breath to calm ourselves and get that parasympathetic response to slow our bodies down and our minds down but also just to ask ourselves simple questions um in in the journal it's powerful i remember a couple of years ago um a big ambition of yours um having come home the first christmas when things had failed in Dublin and that was a really challenging time for you particularly not being able to pay for the bus and to buy Christmas presents and that that was a very real reality and that was painful for for you coming home I remember seeing a photo a couple of years later where you brought your mum to an awards ceremony and, and that was huge for you something you speak about as well was uh, and is that uh, you wanted love to be shown in a certain way from your dad. Maybe could you share a little bit about the the ways in which we expect love to be shown or that we seek approval? Because during the months that are coming ahead, understandably, our parents may be stressed, people around us may be stressed and they may not respond in the ways that they normally do or that we would like them to do. So could be a useful topic to touch on. Sure. Um, the thing with my mum was my mum's birthday was Christmas Day that year. And so I couldn't afford a birthday present. My little brother was 11 and I was 24. And I was just ashamed and embarrassed that he could afford a present and I couldn't. I just felt like the older brother had had a uh, had failed. Um, and I told her in a birthday card, I'll take you out to lunch when things get better. And eventually the lunch I got to take her to was the best of Galway awards. And we won best gym, even though it was just the local beach, we didn't actually have a gym. But, um, the thing with my dad was, I suppose I was working with all these clients, um, as, as a coach and I started seeing 
patterns with them all. And one of the big patterns was it was clear that people were trying to win validation, acceptance and approval from someone. And that was their driving force. So that was the thing that was keeping them going. That was where their goals were coming from. They'd say, I want to make this much money. And I'd ask, you know, why? And they'd say, well, I want to impress this person. And oftentimes it was a parent they were trying to impress. And, you know, based off of seeing it in other people, I started to recognize my own pattern was trying to win approval from my dad in particular. And coming back to the stories thing, we all have a story in our head about how love should look or how respect should look or how pride should look and how people should treat us, all these shoulds. Um, you might watch a film when you're a kid and you build a story in your head of the princess and the prince and that's what romance looks like. So situation happens, I watch a film, meaning is attached to it, that's what love look like, looks like. And then I go into the world with that belief. I, I, I think that if people love me, they'll demonstrate love in certain ways. And so with my dad, I was kind of expected, you know, he should tell me he's proud of me and, and, and use those words. He should, um, he should tell me he loves me. I had all these things that I felt he should do. And it used to really stress me out. And again, with pen and paper and journal, after some conversations with him, it became clear that that just wasn't his way. And, and it wasn't fair to project onto him what I thought he should be doing. And um, I, I started reflecting back over the years and looking at, what else could it mean? Like, how else has he shown me love? And I started identifying all these situations throughout my life where he had supported me in his own way. He had shown, you know, you know, it's, it's like one of those, if you ever meet your parents' friends and they'll say, oh, your dad's always talking about you. And I'm like, I can't imagine that, you know? So sometimes they, they, they show love in different ways. I often reference the Five Love Languages book, which is about intimate relationships, but I think it explains it well. And in that book, yeah, it's, it's a really good resource for people listening. Um, there's a quiz on the website you can check out. Where it's free to do. And the basic premise is this wedding counselor was looking at the different ways we show love. When some people might, might like gifts, other people like physical touch, some like words of affirmation, some like acts of service, some like quality time. And oftentimes what was happening in relationships that were falling apart was I might like gifts. And so I would assume my partner likes gifts. So I've got this expectation on what they should like. And it's unconscious to a large degree. Again, the journaling and the meditation help you start to recognize things that you're doing that are unconscious. Um, but if I buy my partner gifts and I buy them gifts and I buy them gifts, and it actually turns out physical touch is their love language. I feel like I'm doing everything I can to try and um, give them what they need uh, by buying them gifts. They feel like I have no idea who they are. Um, because they don't recognize that they just need physical touch more than gifts. And there's a disconnect there. And so I had the same thing. Oftentimes we have that with our parents. We have an expectation. We forget that our parents are kids of other parents uh, and they're figuring it out too. And they're doing their best too. And they don't have all the answers, but they do their best and whatever that means. I think that's a good in general over the next couple of weeks and months. It's a good, um, outlook to have that everybody you meet is doing their best, even when they do stuff that seems daft or seems like counterproductive or crazy or triggering. Um, you know, people are, people are dealing with a lot of stress and they're going to be dealing with a lot of stress and, and people are going to handle that in different ways. For me, if I don't have a journal and I don't have meditation, I don't have jujitsu, I don't have any of those things, chances are the stress will build up and I'll either take it out myself or I'll take it out on someone else. And, um, I don't mean anything by it, but that's what would happen. So that's why the, the tools are important. Yeah, I, I really agree with that philosophy of everybody is doing their best. And that's depending on 
the energy level they have based on the sleep they had the night before. It's dependent on maybe the comment that somebody gave them in the morning and the way to work, whatever it is, you know, people are constantly impacted by the environment around them and, and we don't know what's going on in their reality. They're, they're just giving their best based on, based on their own perceptions. So we're coming to the close and First of all, I want to say thank you very much. But secondly, I would like to say that, look, this coronavirus has just sharpened the saw on, or the lens on the fact that um, life is fickle, um, it's precious, it's finite, and all of those things. And just in the same way that you could trip crossing the road and and the game might be over, we never know how long we have. How would you like to be remembered? What impact or or legacy would you like to to leave? I'd like people to see a guy who took off the masks and um, showed up as himself and and was unafraid to be himself. And, and by proxy of that, allowed other people to take off their masks. I think that's something that would be a nice legacy. Um, yeah, that would be it, really. A, a guy that was himself and did it his way, I suppose, as, as cliche as that is, that would be, that would be cool. Very, very honourable. Pat Devley, thank you very much. Thank you, my friend. What has been so heartwarming about the Only Human podcast as a project is that it is creating a community. It's creating a tribe of like-minded people who are open to exploring new ideas and insights that can help them in their own lives. If something that was shared in today's podcast has resonated, it's hit home, maybe it's helped you to see things in a different way, or added value to your life in some shape or form, please do share it with a friend. It's the single best way that you can continue to support what we're doing and help us to spread the message. Again, if something has been of value today, please do share it online. Tag us in the post on Instagram, on Facebook, on LinkedIn or Twitter. My Instagram handle is Jack Kavanagh, I-R-L. And thank you. The feedback has been overwhelming. And we really do love having you along for the journey. Until next time, stay well, stay curious. Cheers. Cheers.